Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Christine Thackeray. And I'm Tiffany Dominguez. And Tiffany, it's so great having you here. Do you want to say a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I live in Alpine. Um, Mariana and I are actually in the same ward. I have four kids, uh, and they are in all stages, elementary, junior high, high school, and college. And I am a real estate broker. Um, I've also, I'm also an author. I've written a couple books, and I just love studying the gospel. I taught Release Society for four and a half years, and um, it was one of my favorite callings. I just absolutely love the gospel. Well, and I know that Tiffany really knows her scripture, because like I said, we're in the same ward, and I'm always impressed with all of her comments. So I'm excited to be able to talk scripture with you today, which is always so fun. Just love, love, love talking about the scriptures. Romans is also a difficult part of the scriptures. We talked about last time as we started Romans that um, Elder McConkie claims that it's the most difficult to understand of all the books in the Bible. So, I mean, that's a pretty high standard right there. And even Peter, we read last time, even said that sometimes Paul's epistles were difficult to understand. So, uh, yes, we're also dealing with the last part of Romans, and there's some really difficult concepts. As a matter of fact, as I was reading and rereading and rereading this section, I thought, wow, in Romans, you know, Romans 9, we have foreordination, we have the idea of election, we have the idea of the olive tree, Jacob 5 is, is in Romans, and we have a lot of the same symbolism. Romans 12, we have this idea of a living sacrifice, and then he even touches on things like eating and what people are supposed to eat and not eat, and realize as we talk about all of these things, we're dealing with a, a new church in that the church of Jesus Christ, at this point, everyone's a convert. Everyone's a convert. And they're also in very different um, communities where they're living, where the saints are throughout that Mediterranean area. Each one of these communities are very different. A matter of fact, as we read the different epistles, we're also going to get a little snapshot of the different communities and some of the trials and situations that they have. And as I was thinking about that, I thought how similar to also our worldwide church in that many of the problems and the things that our general authorities, when they go to different areas, they'll deal with very specific things for that community. And so realize that as we read these epistles, we'll be talking about things that are specific for that area. And so sometimes we'll read it and we'll go, well, what does this have to do with me today? Sometimes it might not have to do with you today. Some of it might be things that are actually being talked about specifically for that culture, specifically for that area, specifically for Rome or for Corinth, or for, you know, these other areas that the apostles go and talk to. So, you know, I thought about when general authorities came and uh, visited us when we lived in Redmond, Washington, and oftentimes they would talk very specifically about some of the issues that people had there in Seattle, where um, in terms of Alpine, when general authorities would come to Alpine, Utah, <laughs> they might talk very differently about some of the things that they would talk to the saints there. So I think that that's something we should think about as we go on with the epistles and some of these difficult subjects that realize that some of it is dealing with communities that are very different than ours today. Were there any thoughts as we talk about Romans that you know, some some difficult times that might not be exactly what we need to kind of worry about. Interesting, because as I was looking at each of the areas we were talking about, I was thinking, uh, maybe I live in a world <laughs> that is so filled with, with evil and the kind of crazy things that they were dealing with, that it is more like the world today than it was maybe in when Romans. we were growing up. And, you know, in a very safe environment. So you guys live in Alpine. I live in Rexburg now, but I, you yeah, know, I was most of say, our Rexburg life, is pretty safe. I haven't lived in 
you know, in a church environment. So I'm used to being surrounded by crazy. So even I worked at the group home. So the That's people true. I was working with were That's not. True. <laughs> right. Well, and we've hit a point where the membership of the church is greater outside of the U.S. than exactly. inside of the U.S. So I love how, you know, the Tabernacle Choir now has international members and we're incorporating all the wonderful parts of this global community into our church. Wow. Well, one thing that I would encourage um, all of us, including us here, to do as we read the epistles and specifically as you go through Romans is to pick out those phrases because there's all kinds of one-liners that are just so poignant and powerful. And so I just picked out a couple of them. I know we're going to be discussing these in much more depth. But for instance, in Romans, we have to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I love that. The next one, that ye present your bodies a live sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto, unto God. And then another one that I loved was if God be for us, who can be against us? And so as we read these epistles, that we write down those phrases that just can become a mantra for our life, something that we can really live and live closer. But we know those lines, and then when you look at them in context, sometimes what he's meaning. saying is totally different than how you thought. For instance, your body is a temple. How many times have you heard that? Yeah. In context, he's talking about sexual purity. Yes, it's a hundred definitely. And yes. I was like, "Whoa!" We always heard it in terms of like tattoos or you know, like your body is a temple. Don't graffiti on it. You know, the whole yeah, thing. word of wisdom type yeah, stuff. Yeah, or word right. of wisdom. But it, it's about it's sexual completely. Purity. It's completely. So it is just interesting purity. that as you put them in context, it may twist what you think that line is or how you've interpreted it. So I think putting those one-liners in context Helps really you too. makes them more than one. I agree. Line. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and oftentimes, as we talked before about symbolism, that's the beauty of of a lot of these symbols is that there's multiple ways that we can use them and have them be applicable to our life. The other thing that I wanted to talk about as we go into especially Romans, but also the other epistles, is the Joseph Smith translation. And specifically, I wanted to point out that Romans seven is almost completely. A matter of fact, there's a lot of Romans. That is so much changed by the Joseph Smith translation that you need to look in the back in terms of the Joseph Smith translation verses to understand, truly understand, you know, additional understanding and information about these. And I just wanted to read a couple of changes that Joseph Smith made, specifically in Romans 7. Now, Romans 7 is talking a lot about this idea of spiritual. We talked a lot about last time about the law, and he's talking specifically about the Mosaic law and the difference between the Mosaic law and this higher law that the Savior's asking him to do. And so the reason why I'm bringing this up is because if you read chapter 7, oftentimes the, the comments are, wait a minute, we're not supposed to live the law? And if you understand that it's the Mosaic law versus the law of the doctrine of Christ— that's one of the reasons why he it, it's very much clarified in the Joseph Smith translation. So, for instance, I'm going to be reading the Joseph Smith translation, verses 14, 15, and 16. He says, For we know that the commandment is spiritual, but when I was under the law, meaning the Mosaic law, I was yet carnal, sold under, under sin, but now I'm spiritual. For that which I am commanded to do, I do, and that which I am commanded not to allow, I allow not. For what I know is not right, I would not do. For that which is sin, I hate. And at the very end of 7, this is the way Joseph Smith writes. He says, And if I subdue not the sin which is in me, but with the flesh serve the law of sin, O wretched man that I am. Now, does that sound familiar in the Book of Mormon? It's so great. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord then, that so with the mind I myself serve the law of God. So read the Joseph Smith translation as you go through these epistles. Make sure that you see Latter-day Revelation and 
basically Joseph Smith had this wonderful revelation during his translation of the Book of Mormon, I mean the Bible, also Book of Mormon, because I think you're going to see a lot of similarities in like, oh, wretched man that I am, that you're going to go, oh, that's also in the Book of Mormon. And you'll see phrases like that in, from the epistles that you'll go, oh, yeah, no, that's also in the Book of Mormon as well. So this idea of sin and law and following the Savior, that goes right along with this idea of being joint heirs. And so I know, Christine, you're going to help us understand what that means. Well, I loved this scripture when I was on my mission, and it was like one of my favorites because I went to England and a lot of people are Church of England in England, as you can imagine, and they really, really believe in um, the idea that we're not, in essence, children, that instead we're an invention of God, that we're a different species. And so I love to teach the idea that we were children of God. And I would talk about Mars Hill when he says, we are the offspring of God. So why would you think God's out of stone or gold if we're his offspring? He's of the same stuff we are. And and then you have this one where we are children heirs and joint heirs, the idea that we're in the same family. And um, in contrast, C.S. Lewis had said that God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine, like a car or lawnmower. So in essence, we're God's lawnmower. (laughs) (laughs) And then he says, a car's made to run on petrol and God designed humans to run off himself, which was a great idea. But it's not this literal offspring of God that Paul teaches about. So when I was excited and saw this air joint airs, I was like, woohoo. But that's not at all what this is talking about. And I'd never seen it before because I'd always used it in terms of talking about we're children of God. But that idea that we're children of God just means we're part of humanity. Right. Because all of us are children of God. So it's just saying we're human is being children of God. It's not is that horrible to say that special? Because it's just the action of being human is being a child of God. But this child of God is different. So I wanted to start back at the verse before. So we're going to go back in context. And in um, verse uh, 7 of Romans, um, he talks about how I am carnal and soul under sin, what you just read about. And then he talks about the struggle we have between the flesh part of us that has appetites and frustrations, the part of us that's road rage when someone pulls out in front of us, the part of us that wants to eat too much, the part of us that doesn't want to live within the guidelines maybe of sexual purity versus the part of us that when we come to the Lord, when we read our scriptures, We see what perfection feels like and looks like. And so we have this law of the mind, the idea of the perfect world and us as a perfect person, and then the reality of who we are, which may be very imperfect. And in um, verse 23 of chapter 7 in Romans, he says, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And so this law of God that he talks about in 22 that brings me delight versus the law of sin, which is my body. So you have this fight between warring, between what's in your head is perfect and what you do, which may not be as perfect if you struggle like I do. So I loved this idea of these two, the natural man, versus the spiritual, the, and he calls it the law of the mind, which is interesting. Don't you think that is an interesting idea mm-hmm. that in our mind, don't we get this perfect, especially the more we read the scriptures of, of our perfect law of the mind? But um, I think that that's what makes sometimes as we start living the gospel, we don't feel happy because every day we feel like we don't measure up to where we should go. Do you see that among people, that frustration that as they try to live the gospel more and more, they don't feel that joy. And it really hit me, um, that gap between what we feel we should be, that war between the natural man and this perfection. Um, There's a term for that that's called cognitive dissonance. 
And it's the difference between what we believe, the law of the mind, and what we actually do, which is our own actions, which is the law of the flesh, and that fight between the two. And recently, I've been, um, I've had a couple of close friends that have left the church. And it was so odd to me because when they left, they they just suddenly one day they're temple worthy, doing everything they should. And then the next day they say, I'm never coming back. And they won't talk to you about why. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? I've never experienced that. I'm like, well, tell me if you've come to some great new knowledge, share it, share it. But they won't talk to you. And it was interesting because as I was reading this article in, in Psychology Today, um, it said that cognitive dissonance, when there's this distance between what all of us deal with, this perfect idea of how our family should be versus the laundry pile that just never gets undone, you know, <laughs> that, um, that that difference can cause us when we don't deal with it to rigid beliefs and sudden changes in behavior and inhibits constructive dialogue. Hmm. So it stops people talking and they just walk away. And that's when they're like, I'm so much happier because they walk away. And I'm like, how do we not have that war? How do we silence it? And in King Benjamin's address, we have the answer. But Paul also says the same answer, which are you surprised? No, (laughs) because it says King Benjamin said the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless... He yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit. And in Romans, it says, for if you live after the flesh, you die. But if you live through the Spirit, then you live. And so the way we make that not be this horrible thing is the Spirit. So I wanted to ask you, how do you feel the Spirit makes the difference between those two pieces? And I'm asking very accomplished women who don't have as big of a difference between their perfect self and themselves right now. That's not true. (laughs) I don't believe you. (laughs) But tell me, how does the spirit make up that difference? How does it stop the war? Well, appearances are often deceiving. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it goes back to the answer is Jesus Christ. Hmm. It goes back to instead of trying to resolve that cognitive dissonance on our own, do we hand it over to him? And we, we, may, we probably will not understand a lot of it or how to bridge that gap. But as we increasingly rely on him and we realize increasingly our own lack, I think that's really where we, we have peace, where we can find that, where we say, I don't, I don't have an idea of what the specific outcome of this should be. I'm just handing the whole thing over to you. And um, I think as I've done that in my life, that's made the difference for me in spite of all the therapy and knowledge and scripture study and all of that was just handing it over to him. I love it. That is wonderful. Well, and I also wanted to point out that um, both Nephi and also Paul say, oh, wretched man that I am. And I don't know about you, but I say that often, a wretched woman that I am, or I'm a terrible person. I can't believe I did that. And so I do think that we still have those feelings of, what did I do? And yet, the whole point of rejoicing in the atonement enables us to be able to say, I have hope. And I think one of the problems with cognitive dissonance is that they've lost that hope. They've lost that understanding. And, and I think so that the true. hope in the Savior Jesus Christ, that I can, I can be forgiven, but I also can move forward knowing that, yeah, I did it wrong. Yeah, I said the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I shouldn't have done that. But I'm going to learn from that. I'm going to move forward. And through the Spirit, I know that next time I learn from that experience I love it. and I will be a better person because of it. That is so beautiful. And Paul says we are saved by hope. And it's that idea that we have the hope. But with this of the Spirit, now it says we are not 
um, receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. So we don't feel right. fear that we're not good enough, right. but we have the spirit of adoption. So through having Christ in our lives and through having the spirit that gives us those little moments of hope that we feel that closeness and we feel his joy and peace in our heart, then we choose it says the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and we're the children of God because we have the spirit with us. It's not that we're born of God. I'm a child of God. It's I'm choosing to have the spirit in my life and therefore becoming a child of God by choice. And with that spirit of adoption, that's how we become joint heirs. Well, and isn't it a child of Jesus Christ? Right. That's that's different. And that's we're, what it says. We are a child of of God. We are all a child right. of God, but we are a child of Jesus Christ as we make that choice to be, you know, baptized Absolutely. and be a part of And in the church. intercessory prayer, it's clearly that we're part we're his. And then exactly. later in King Benjamin's address, it says that we are children of Christ. Here, it just says child of God, but right. it is Christ that, that we choose to be the child of Christ. So I, I just thought when we sing, I am a child of God, instead of thinking we were born a child of God, it's I choose to be a child of God through my choice. And with that choice, that's how we find joy is having the spirit. And um, I just wanted to end with this great quote that Elder Nelson said, um, that even though sometimes as we strive and we have this war between the perfect self and the other, and we don't feel that happiness, we feel the old wretched man. Oh, yeah. But then the spirit comes and comforts us, and we know we're on the right path. And Elder Nelson said, the truth is it's more exhausting to seek happiness where you can never find it. When you yoke yourself to Jesus Christ and do the spiritual work to overcome the world, he and he alone has the power to lift us above the pull of the world. Cherish and honor your covenants about all other commitments. And as you let God prevail in your life, I promise you greater peace, joy, and yes, rest. And so that's the way to happiness, even though temporarily... It seems like it isn't. <laughs> we wore. <laughs> well, and, and along with that, that does not mean that we won't have trials. That doesn't mean that we won't have tribulations <laughs> along the way. Bummer. <laughs> but that eternal glory outweighs those trials and tribulations. And I know that's what you were going to comment on, Tiffany. Right, exactly. So that's perfect. Um, so in Romans eight seventeen, it says... And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So I thought that was interesting that Paul talks about suffering with Christ. So what is it that we are to suffer? Um, not for our sins, because he did that for us. Um, so what, what suffering would be necessary? Many have asked through the years, why would a loving God allow us to suffer? To, to your point, why, why do we have to have these things? I'd rather not. Um, so recently, I've spent a lot of time studying the, the early history of our church. And I was really struck by the incredible suffering that was endured but the miraculous faith that was shown by these individuals, they were highly intelligent people, um, sometimes very prosperous, prosperous, and they, they sacrificed what? I mean, some might argue all their earthly possessions to heed the call to come to Zion. Um, some gave their very lives, some their children or their spouse, or they lost something precious to the mob violence. Um, over 70,000 of them, I didn't know this before I started studying, crossed the plains, um, proving faith as they made sacrifice after sacrifice. Um, so one of my favorite quotes that I go to almost every day <laughs> is from Lectures on Faith. And uh, the Prophet Joseph Smith tells us that we cannot be exalted without the sacrifice of all earthly things. He says, let us here observe that a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has the power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. 
for from the first existence of man the faith necessary unto the enjoyment of life and salvation never could be obtained without the sacrifice of all earthly things so i've wondered again why is that sacrifice necessary and what does it mean to sacrifice all earthly things but perhaps the term earthly possessions could be interpreted more broadly Perhaps it means time away from earthly things and more time in the temple. So I have two brief experiences to share mm -hmm. about what I've learned about what it means to sacrifice with Christ. Um, first, about 18 months ago, I made a difficult decision to get a divorce of my husband from 20 years. Um, as I did so, I really could not have anticipated the suffering that would result from that decision. Um, I knew the end result would be better for myself and my children, but I had no idea that my life that I had built up uh, upon these relationships, um, a lot of them terminated with the divorce. Um, President Nelson said in the last conference, and I loved this, and I felt like he was talking just to me, but he said, you know, couples getting divorced don't need your judgment. They need um, charity. They need the pure love of Christ. Mm -hmm. And so um, I did, you know, unfortunately experience some judgment um, and at times just sat alone in my home wondering what I had done. And I had been faithful in my testimony, in my marriage. I had raised my kids in the gospel and I just, I couldn't figure out what had happened. And, but as I gained a little time and perspective, I learned things about myself that I couldn't have learned in any other way. Um, the person I became and the absolute reliance I gained on Christ um, never could have come any other way. Um, and the realization that no matter how dark the day, I wouldn't leave him. Um, so, and then I watched miracle after miracle happen in my life. Um, and while I, you know, I wouldn't go back and choose this again, um, <laughs> I don't think any of us would necessarily do that. I, kn I know I wouldn't be who I am without that experience, so I would not be as close to Christ, and I wouldn't have sought him as desperately as I did in the depths of my suffering. So I really I really do feel like I, I couldn't have gained that closeness any other way. Um, second experience, um, President Nelson says, the time is coming when those who do not obey the Lord will be separated from those who do. Our safest insurance is to continue to be worthy of admission to his holy house. Um, so about six months ago, a friend of mine shared with me the absolute change that had happened in her life from attending the temple twice a week. Um, so I decided to follow her example and sacrifice the earthly things um, for time spent there. Um, in God's house. And so I not only go twice a week, but I take my girls to do baptisms every week. And we have just seen miracle after miracle in our life from that. And I believe that as we do that, we unlock the ability of our ancestors to help us from the other side of the veil. As they receive those covenants, they can then help us. And so I, I just believe that as we sacrifice our earthly time, to be with Christ in his temple, we will see miracles as we become closer to him and realize all the blessing and promises. And we talk about this cognitive dissonance. Um, you know, over President Nelson's talk was entitled Overcome the World. So if we want to overcome that cognitive dissonance, we have to go to the temple. We have to be changed. Every time we go to the temple, we, we leave a different person. We have to we have to get rid of that natural man by going to the temple by having him change us. So how so. do you go twice a week? Like, do you <laughs> plan it at the beginning of the week, or do you? How do you do it? Do you go to the first one and then sneak in the? How do you do it? <laughs> well, it's so great now that we can schedule things because I yeah, know exactly nice. when I can be out. So we schedule. Um, we try and schedule baptisms for my kids, but. A lot of times we don't have appointments and we go on a Friday afternoon and they'll, they'll always take them. Oh, nice. You know, so wonderful. Yeah. But for, and for me, um, it's always easy to get into an endowment. I do an endowment and an initiatory once a week and the initiatories, 
you if you don't have an appointment because they're really hard to get, then you can just walk in and they might just let you do two names, but then you can go sit in the celestial room. Yeah. You know, so I feel like I can't survive without it. I it has changed my life going that often. And I would, no matter what was going on in my life, or if the temple's closed for cleaning, I'll drive to another temple. I wouldn't that would will always be my first priority. I love it. I love that. You know, as you were talking about, you know, the trials and the things that you've learned and the sacrifice that you've had, I couldn't help but think about Romans chapter five, verses one through five, which we talked about last week. But that progression, you you talked about it so beautifully because Paul says, you know, when being justified by faith, which obviously you had, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and not only also, but we glory in tribulations, also knowing that tribulation worketh patience, patience experience, experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. And as you were describing your experience, I just felt like, boy, you went through that same progression that Paul was talking about in terms of your faith in Jesus Christ and that hope being actually strengthened through a very difficult sacrificing time. So um, I, I just love that. It was so beautiful. The, the next thing that we're going to talk about that's also in Romans 8 is a really difficult concept that oftentimes I think that that a lot of times we have a difficult time understanding, and that is the idea of foreordination or election. And I think of the Puritan ethic, and you know the the Puritan, and that was a, a lot of what's been based on our early American history was that you know you were blessed by God, so if you were wealthy, that meant that you were righteous. You know that there was this uh, obvious correlation between the blessings that you received and and what happened, and that also in in English history we know this idea of foreordination that. I am the king because the Lord made me come down to this family. So, you know, it's the Lord's divine right that I am a king. And yet, I don't know if, you know, there, there's going to be some interesting things that Paul brings up. So let's read in Romans 8. We're going to read 29 and 30, and then we're going to go to 9, 11, the next chapter. He says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And then if you turn to 9.11, he also says, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. So my question for you is, so what do you think about this idea of being predestined to do something that we have Alma chapter 13, we have some understanding of this, that there we do believe in a pre-mortal existence that allowed us to learn and to grow. And yet, does that mean that what I, I, that my agency is taken away? Does that mean that what I'm going to do is something that is predestined and can't be changed? What are some of your thoughts? Well, in 29, he's speaking specifically of Christ. Yes. And so it's it's the idea of the war in heaven, that he was predestined to be the savior, that he said, here am I, send me. And so I think that if we extrapolate that idea of predestination to the fact that, you know, I've had this like perfect life or was born into this, I think that in a way... That's not what he was talking about. Right. He was talking about the plan of salvation and that Christ specifically was predestined. But others of us, as in Abraham 3, you know, are the noble and great ones. And and we, 
in in my patriarchal blessing, oddly, it says, um, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I was yelling at my at mother because I was a yeller when I was a teenager. I was horrible. But I was yelling at mother and the spirit yelled louder and said, Christine, you have to get your patriarchal blessing. And I got my patriarchal blessing. And do you know what it said in there? It said, I chose my parents. And I was like, what? I was so dumb. But it said it was a gift because I had been righteous. And so I was able to choose my parents. And I thought, well, I was smarter. <laughs> and my parents were wonderful. I just... Um, they was a rebel. <laughs> I know. I was a rebel. It's okay. <laughs> well, but what I so was going to good. point out in Romans 9 we do before... Have and right. Was predestined. And in Sorry. Romans 9 before 9-11, basically he's talking here, not, not of the Savior, but he's talking about Sarah. He's talking about... You know Abraham, Isaac, right. Sarah. They were chosen before they were. They were all cho chosen before they were born, right. and so you know this idea that they did have a, a specific mission, right. not just the Savior. And we we do. I think the fact that even if we're born into a, a family that has the gospel, or if it comes across in our lives, often that is a spiritual gift that may have been predestined before we were born. And we're part of those few that have that gift. And so I think to be grateful, not to be boastful about it. Yeah. <laughs> like now I'm responsible. <laughs> right. And Tiffany, do you have some thoughts on that too? Yeah, well, President Nelson's talk, um, well, the devotional he did with his wife, Wendy, called Hope of Israel, he talks about the predestination for mm -hmm. this generation, right? At that time, he was talking to the 12 to 18. And he calls them Earth's heroes, he says they, you know, they they were chosen for this time, the these you know last days on earth to gather Israel, and he and Sister Nelson says you you don't have to do it, you have your agency, right? But this was what you were chosen to do, and so I love that, and that's what I teach my kids. You know, I know it's it's hard, and not everybody's going to choose that, but you know, the, this is who you are. You're heroes. Well, okay. and along with that, I, it goes with your comment too. Realize, you know, Romans, and we've talked about this often, that these epistles were not written in chapters. You know, oftentimes as we read them, they've been previously and modern day have been, you know, basically just put into these little chunks where it was written as a whole. And so we need to kind of look at some of these doctrines as a whole, not in chunks. And so you were describing in just the, the chapter before how he's describing this cognitive dissonance. And a lot of that cognitive dissonance is the fact that we do have our agency here on earth. And so we, we do may have been foreordained for a specific purpose. And then if we don't do it, our spirits probably do in a, in a little part do remember, you know, and and we don't, you know, we, we have that frustration between the natural man and what the Lord expects us to do. And so we do have, I, I wanted to share what three, two apostles and a prophet has said about this. Elder Maxwell gave an entire talk based on this, and he said, premortality is not a relaxing doctrine. For each of us, there are choices to be made, incessant and difficult chores to be done, ironies and adversities to ex experience, time to be well spent, talents and gifts to be well employed. Just because we were chosen there and then surely does not mean we can be indifferent here and now. Whether for ordination for men or for destination for women, those called and prepared must also prove chosen and faithful. So I actually brought a quote from Joseph Smith that I also refer back to often. I feel like we have such a wealth from him mm -hmm. and we don't necessarily need to go to any other resource. But um, he says um, of this day, um, you know, he said that we have the doctrine of the gathering we have since the restoration and um, of kind of this foreordained time, 
He says the um, the heavenly priesthood will unite with the earthly to bring about those great purposes. And while we are thus united in the one common cause to roll forth the kingdom of God, the heavenly priesthood are not idle spectators. The spirit of God will be showered down from above and will dwell in our midst. The blessings of the Most High will rest upon our tabernacles and our name will be handed down to future ages. Our children will rise up and call us blessed and generations yet unborn will dwell with peculiar delight upon the scenes that we have passed through, the privations that we have endured, the untiring zeal that we have manifested, the all but insurmountable difficulties that we have overcome in laying the foundations of a work that brought about the glory and blessings which they will realize, a work that God and angels have contemplated with delight for generations past that fired the souls of the ancient patriarchs and prophets, a work that is destined to bring about the destruction of the powers of darkness, the renovation of the earth, the glory of God, and the salvation of the human family. So not exactly answering your question, but saying this is what this is what we were ordained to do. We were ordained to be part of the most exciting time on earth. Oh, definitely. And so sometimes when things seem really grim, I actually like to scroll the news head, news headlines because I'm like, oh, we're in the time. Mm-hmm. We're in this time. And it's exciting. And we were excited to come down and be a part of this. Well, and along with that, I do think that we still have a choice. The one thing that I think is fascinating to me is we read the Doctrine and Covenants we will have over and over again a time where Joseph Smith will give a blessing. I'm thinking of James Colville in specific, because within one day, you know, basically Joseph Smith gave him a blessing where it was so glorious, all of these blessings that he's given. You know, you are going to be leading in the latter days. You're going to be this great, uh, you know, member of the church. And then the next day he leaves the church. You know, within one day of giving that glorious blessing, and the next day, he's like, well, you know what? Uh, you know, I, I don't think I believe it. And so he leaves. And and I think all of us still have that agency and choice. But you're right. We get to be a part of the most glorious time in history, but it's our choice. You know, we have that foreordination to be a part of it, but we get to choose whether we're going to do it or not. Well, I always giggle because I always think of the understudies. When someone like oh, steps out, it. like maybe I'll be the understudy and get that good. Piece. Hop in, hop in. <laughs> so there's always someone else that will fill the gap. Yeah, <clears throat> because God's purposes are sure. Right. They, you know, we we a mere man will not stop it from moving forward. Right. And along with that, uh, Elder McConkie also talked about this, and he says, you know, hence comes the doctrine of ordination. When we come into mortality, we bring the talents, capacities, and abilities acquired by obedience to law in our prior existence. Mozart composed and published sonatas when but eight years of age because he was born with musical talent. Melchizedek came into the world with such faith and spiritual capacity that when a child he feared God and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire. Cain, on the other hand, like Lucifer, was a liar from the beginning and was told in his life, thou shalt be called perdition, for thou wast also before the world. And so I thought a lot about that, and I do feel that one of the the glorious doctrines of our church is that we do know that we had a premortal existence that allowed us and our spirits to come to knowledge about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I think it's so beautiful that you started with that topic of, um, you know, the dissidence that oftentimes happens in our life when we don't choose this foreordained, you know, life that the Lord has given us and blessed us with. And that all too often I see people that are leaving the church and that are are having crises of faith. And yet, um, how can we help? And that's my question for you. How can we help people to be able to to stay faithful, to be able to stay sure in terms of their foreordained um, role that the Lord has given them in this life? Well, I love your quote because I think that's the answer, is that when you see you're part of a whole, 
when you see that all of these ancestors that have sacrificed so much are watching us and you see yourself in context, then it's easier to be part of it. It's when we pull away and we think our identity is our own and we're not part of that entire group, the past, the present, and the future, that I think that's when we lose it, when we walk away from it. Right. And I, yeah, go ahead. Well, and I think COVID, your your example is so uh, relevant to what we're dealing with because I think COVID caused us to feel alone in that and, and disconnected. so uh, disconnected. And so for many people, that was a crisis of faith, you know, saying yeah. like, I'm, I'm disconnected from that whole picture. Right, right. And a big part of connecting ourselves is doing, is through our ancestors. Yeah. And so... Sister Nelson, in her book, um, The Heavens Are Open, says that, um, and she's quoting a friend of hers, but she says that um, if we were to, um, the moment like we start doing serious family history research, we can develop an unshakable testimony. Isn't that one? So, you know, if you're, if you can, you know, maybe somebody doesn't want to talk about the reasons, like you said, your friends wouldn't tell you. But everybody wants to feel that connection. And if you can say, are you curious about your past? Let's talk about it. I can, I can help. And I think, and we can't be saved without doing that work. And they can't be saved without us. And there's just the spirit of Elijah is here. That can help us. So that's one way. It's so cool. Using the temple and family history as a way to connect us is really well, and we've worked a lot with return missionaries, and specifically return missionaries who have left the church. And the one thing that I found that oftentimes brings them back is that same thing of connection where we'll say, well, tell me about your mission. Tell me about the experiences that you had on your mission. And once they start talking about their mission and that connection, it's amazing how it's like the light reignites and they begin to remember. And I think that's the reason why the Lord wants us to remember so much, because we remember who our ancestors were. We remember even our premortal existence as we go forward in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that goes along with our next thought of being a living sacrifice to God. And and I love the way, you know, Paul, when you look at it just in chunks and chapters, you don't realize how beautiful this arc is in terms of Romans. All of these principles really do come together as as we look at it as a whole. Too. It is it is really interesting. So um, I I love that in in chapter twelve where Paul says that um, right at the beginning, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy. Acceptable, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And so I thought of the sacrifice that um, the Jews used to do when they lived the law of Moses mm -hmm. and how it had to be a lamb without spot. And they all pretty much looked the same. But it's cute because right away, and this is one of those moments where you look in context with what he's saying that you think the living sacrifice, are we all supposed to be the same and this living sacrifice mm -hmm. is supposed to be unique? But he doesn't say that. He says in verse 3, according God has dealt to every man the measure of his faith. For as we have many members in one body and all members have not the same office. So even though we're each giving ourselves as a living sacrifice, our sacrifice looks totally different, mm -hmm. which makes me so happy. Mm -hmm. And then he goes through and gives examples of four different types of gifts or sacrifice that we can give. And the four he does, the first one is the gift of prophecy. And I thought that is so interesting because you know how some people really get into like looking forward, like um, they're really good at food storage. I have a friend who is so good at finding deals that add to food storage. And I really think that's her gift. Whenever she talks to people, she finds places and she keeps them looking forward. And she makes me a better person through her gift of prophecy. She really does. I know that sounds silly, 
The next one was the gift of ministering or ministry, which is both spreading the gospel and like lifting and helping people. And I think that idea of ministering, and we all know people that do that really well. When I was on my mission, there was a man. Um, the first thing I do when I came to a new area is I would visit all the people that didn't go to church very often mm -hmm. because by doing that, their friends are all not members. So it was like really easy to find good referrals. So that was my strategy. I thought it was very it's a good strategy. strategy. Yeah, <laughs> very good strategy. Because you go to the really active people, they only That's have right. friends that are members. It doesn't work. <laughs> so, um, but this one man came and he knew every single person on the roster that hadn't come for years. And I said, how do you know that? And he's like, oh, I visit them every week. And you're like, what? And wow. so what he a blessing. parks at the what a end gift. of the street and he would go and just like knock on the door, make sure they're doing well and just chat with them. And he was just a chatter. And so I said, well, what is your calling? And he's like, this is my calling. And I'm like, that's not a calling. And he <laughs> said, well, I have 17 people that I home teach. And so that's how what I do. Wow. And I said, well, do you have wow. any other calling? And he said, nope. And I went to the bishop and I thought, well, maybe there's something up. You know, maybe he's... And the bishop's like, why would I have him have another yeah. calling? <laughs> what that's a full-time calling right yeah. there. Yeah. And his gift, his sacrifice was that of ministry. And I thought yeah. that was so cute. We have a wow. man in our ward who does the same thing that has to know every single person. <laughs> when they move in, he's in their home. Um, the next gift of living sacrifice is teachers. And some people are natural teachers. They just really can open your mind and wow you. And you are such a great teacher. And you have already taught me so much. <laughs> you guys both have that. And then the last one is exhorting. And he talks about the gift of exhorting. And we don't use that word. And usually you think it's like like nagging people. That's what I think of it when you're exhorted. Or telling people they're doing something wrong. Right. But right? no, Negative. it means to urge or motivate. Mm -hmm. And we all know motivators. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll just be kind of like doing the best you can, slodging around. And then you'll be around someone who just finds it's joy better. in the gospel. And you're like, I can do that better. And so I think that some of us truly have that. And, and so the idea that each of our sacrifices are unique and beautiful in their own um, world is so great. So I told you that I used to teach seminary to the art school students, and they were very unique. Each one was so different. They often felt like they weren't the typical Mormon. And so I found this quote from Elder Worthland, and I put it in this huge sign that was in the room that stayed up all year because I wanted them to remember it. And it's, the Lord did not people the earth with a vibrant orchestra of personalities only to value the piccolos of the world. I love and that. so I think sometimes we think I'm not a piccolo, so I just don't fit in. I'm not a Molly Mormon. I'm so unique and different. But it says every instrument is precious and adds to the complex beauty of the symphony of the gospel. And so I love that idea that our sacrifice can look as wacky as it needs to be for who we are, as long as it's within the bounds that the Lord the has God set. Jesus Christ. I agree. Well, and I know, uh, Tiffany, sometimes that causes disputations when we're dealing with people that have different ways of seeing the gospel or different ways of living the gospel. And I, I know that President Nelson has talked very specifically about that. Yes. Um, so, yeah, Romans 14 talks a lot about disputations and not judging. And so in his talk, President Nelson says, um, anger never persuades, hostility builds no one, contention never leads to inspired solutions. Regrettably, we sometimes see contentious behavior even within our own ranks. We hear of those who belittle their spouses and children, of those who use angry outbursts to control others, and of those who punish family members with the silent treatment. We hear of youth and children who bully and of employees who defame their colleagues. So I mentioned I have children in every level of school, elementary, junior high, high school, and college. And so one theme is very clear, and that is that my children deal with an incredible amount of contention and unkindness daily. Um, in fact, they come home so drained that I have to be really on my game as a mom to be there to help them to help absorb some of that 
um, you know, how they've been drained and they just, um, they feel, they, they feel that sense of unrest that's there at the school. So we, we try and provide opportunities to, you know, replenish. We just have to be so mindful of that. And I don't, I don't feel like that was necessarily the case when I was growing up, but I, I really have to work on it now. Um, so, and I, I've come across one particularly hard challenge, and that is to teach my children that the phrases that most people say that sound reasonable are in fact not kind at all. Mm-hmm. So they've, they hear these terms at school where kids will affectionately call their friends losers or idiots or, you know, so they're, it's supposed to be affectionate, but it's actually harmful. And they will tell me, oh, but all the kids say that. And so I have to very carefully listen and point out that's unkind and let me tell you why <laughs> you know so it's very it's it's hard because they're just constantly surrounded by this negativity and contention um so after this talk i was really impressed because my 13 year old um listened very carefully to what president nelson said and she has this friend group at school and there's a couple people that you know they have a hard time with it's junior high. Um, and she told her friend, she said, we should stop talking badly about this person. Um, and it wasn't received the way she wanted. And so she came home and said, it didn't work. What president Nelson said didn't work. (laughs) And, And, but actually I pointed out it did work because the way you feel about these people has changed. And so, she now has compassion for them and she's not no longer feeling hurt by their words. And, um, when I heard this talk, um, you know, I have a couple people, I mentioned my divorce. I have a couple people that, um, you know, hurt me during that process. And I decided, well, since president Nelson mentioned how Christ on the cross forgave his enemies and he could have done it in his head, he could have, but he didn't, he did it out loud. And so I decided I'm, I'm just going to pray for them out loud and see if that makes a difference. And so I did, and I started to think, what do I need to pray for? What would, what could they use in their lives? And so I started praying out loud for them and something changed inside me and the hurt that I didn't even know still remained lifted. And I started to actually desire good things for these people. And so that's my, I guess, question. I'll throw that back to you. Have you experienced that where um, that type of contention in your life and what did you do about it? Well, I can remember we had an experience that was very difficult. I was pregnant with my ninth child and we had moved to a new community where I didn't know anybody. And um, we... uh, found a, a person because we had nine children um we couldn't find a house that was big enough <laughs> and so we needed to add on to this house and so uh somebody had you know referred to us to this person well basically what this person was a crook and he basically <laughs> took off the back of my house and left the state and it wasn't just me it was 17 people oh. that he just took their money and ran <laughs> And um, and here I was, pregnant. My husband's starting a new job. I didn't know anybody. I, you know, I, and it was really hard for me to deal with that without feeling that anger to this man that had, you know, taken all of our money at that point. You know, it was all of our savings to fix this house, and um, it took me a long time. It took a lot of prayer, just like you just you know, you described. And I think any time that we're dealing with that, we can't do it alone. It has to be through the Savior, Jesus Christ, that we become healed. Because the natural man won't forget it when we're hurt that deeply. And I love what you said, because um, Paul says to overcome evil with good. 
and that you have to add good. You have to want good for them. I think so too. And so you want them to have the best in their life. Yeah. Because it's so easy to curse them rather than bless them. And he says that you should bless your enemies. And I think that's what you did is switch it up. I also think that when we go through that process of forgiveness, when someone has intentionally hurt us, that sometimes the Lord will bring experiences or people into our lives that make a difference. Because I had a, a situation where I was very hurt by um, some women. I was Relief Society president, and we had a Relief Society that only eight people came to our little tiny ward. So I went and visited everyone on the rosters and had 29 sisters come to my first meeting. Which is wonderful. Eight. Wow. And wow. so it was huge. And the previous Relief Study president was so offended mm -hmm. because I was just trying to be better than her. And I wasn't even thinking about her, but it became this little group of hate. And it was like everything they could do to hurt me because uh, I had ruined their club. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I had, but, um, but it took me years. I, I was so hurt by that. And I don't know why they sent letters to the stake president saying how horrible I was. Mm -hmm. Because now there were 29 people coming to realize this. Sorry. Yeah. But it, it was so hurtful. It got under my skin. And it really did affect me. And it was interesting because I felt like I should go visit a brother-in-law who was showing me this is odd to say, but I'm going to say it. Brought up um, tapping. It's kind of like, mm -hmm. I, I've never done that. I have. And it, it helped me to un, like do some of, you know, that like not that it brought. Mm -hmm. right. But I promise that if it wasn't right then, I needed that to help with my healing so I could get to the point mm -hmm. where I could bless them and forgive them. And it's, it's such a bizarre thing. I don't do it anymore. But at that time, it's like the Lord will direct you to what you need to heal when you try. Well, and that goes right along with our final point, and that is the power of fellowshipping and ministering to each other. Oh, and bringing healing. Exactly. And in chapter 15, he talks about true saints and how true saints fellowship each other. And he says, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves, Ooh. which is a Ooh. really strong point. <laughs> Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. And I love in the Doctrine and Covenants when it talks about strengthen the feeble knees, that this is the idea and the fact that we change to the idea of ministering, I think goes right along with what Paul is trying to tell us. And I wanted to end with the story of Phoebe. I know that um, Susan last week talked about Phoebe. How she loves Phoebe. And I love Phoebe, too, because Phoebe here, she was basically the one that brought the Romans epistle to the Romans. And yet there's three things that Phoebe is described as being. And I just love these three things. She's, where is this? This is 16, 1 through 4. And basically, Paul describes her first of all, as our sister. And then he describes her as a servant of the church and then a succorer of many. Oh. And uh, Sister Camille Franck Olson also talked a lot about her too. She she also loves Phoebe. Oh. And, and he, she says here, the meaning and function of each title hint that Phoebe played a meaningful role in ministering to others in the early church. Though her appearance in scripture is minimal, we can learn from Phoebe's example of devotion to the work of ministering in the church. Notably, Paul chose not to identify specific ways that Phoebe served the cause of Christianity in her day, only that she could be trusted and that her service was important to the church by being a loving servant and succor to those around us. We can leave a similar legacy. Right. And I do agree with that, that we can leave a similar legacy as we think about how can we minister better? How can we better be a better fellowshipper in our ward, in our stake, even to those just in our family, too? Any final thoughts about fellowshipping as we conclude today? Well, and I may have told this before, but 
<clears throat> one um, day I, I just was randomly in church and a woman sat next to me and said, your mother changed my life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what? And she said that she was going through a divorce and feeling very lonely. And um, sorry, every time she came to church, mother would call her by name and say how grateful she was there. And she said, sometimes that was the only person who said my name. So that afternoon, I went to my mother's house and I said, do you know <laughs> Sister Mabel? And my mother's like, I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it was the legacy. Yeah. It was the legacy. Mm -hmm. of, it was a legacy. Of, it had been in a different mother. ward and it was right. just a season. Mm -hmm. right. But I think sometimes we don't even know. You wonder how, if she was people. even aware how many people she suckered if it was just part of what she did. Who she was. I agree. And I think as we minister, as we give our gifts, as we reach out, we don't know all the people we will touch. Well, and I do think that our mother was a Phoebe because I was just walking. I have a walking group, and I was walking with somebody, and I just mentioned our mother and, and something that she had said. And she stopped walking, and she goes, who is your mother? <laughs> and I said, Geraldine Edwards. And she goes, are you kidding me? She said, when I, I moved to California as a new mother— she was born and raised here in Utah. And she said, I knew nobody. I knew nothing. I felt so alone. And your mother became my mother. Oh. And she said, it, and she was a Phoebe. That is so sweet. She was Phoebe. Yeah. But your mother is a Phoebe too. Yes. Oh. Yes, for she sure. She is. And I I also I, I feel like ministering is the the pathway for these small miracles these um you know that we've talked about and um when I was uh first married I had the calling to be the visiting teaching coordinator was what it was back then and um it happened that um so my my divorce that I just went through was actually my second divorce so um, I was married to a man for only about a year um, when I was 21, and um, I had I had gained this testimony of visiting teaching through being a visiting teaching ministering coordinator, um, and I got this assignment to minister to this lady who whose husband was terminally ill and she was supporting her kids, and that assignment. Um, she was, I developed such a close relationship with her and she was so kindly grateful for me coming by and just talking with her that it made the difference to me to help myself see, to help me see myself as somebody of value. And because I was going through this disillusionment time, but to be able to have somebody she even made me this little angel ornament that I still hang on my tree to this day. Oh, I love it. And, you know, so I really, so to me, it's a program of miracles. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That's very sweet. Well, thank you so much for our beautiful discussion today. I appreciate the way you have strengthened my testimony. So thank you.